Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Sometime in the blur of 2018, this happened. Late today, top GOP fundraiser Elliot Broidy abruptly resigned from the Republican National Committee. Broidy is a portly man with a wide forehead, a thatch of straw-colored hair, and sometimes a blonde mustache. He's a California financier and the owner of a security firm. He's been a player around governments in California, New York, and Washington, was at the top of Trump's fundraising apparatus. But chances are, you've never heard of him. And if you did, you forgot. The venture capitalist acknowledged paying $1.6 million to a former Playboy model who said that he'd gotten her pregnant. The lawyer who negotiated the payoff, Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal attorney. Broidy Cohen. The story came and went so fast, the name Elliot Broidy barely registered in a cloud of scandal that follows President Trump like dirt around the Peanuts character Pigpen. Raids, indictments, guilty pleas, convictions, sex scandals, influence peddling. Other reports have said the fundraiser, Broidy, held out access to Trump as the prize for prospective customers for his private business. Broidy, the Associated Press reported, had pushed policies favored by princes from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates directly to President Trump. And his security company had signed a contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars with the UAE, the Emirates. Broidy's title at the Republican National Committee was National Deputy Finance Co-Chair, the same title as this guy. Who better to make America great again? Michael Cohen. To make this company what it needs to be than Donald Trump. We need great deals. We need When Elliot Broidy needed a lawyer for a hush money agreement, he hired Cohen, then the president's attorney. Both men raised money for Trump. They both had his ear. And they both made money from that connection. You only know about one of them. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica that digs deep into the intersection of business and politics in the Trump administration. I'm Andrea Bernstein. This season... We're broadening our open investigation to look not only at the president and his family, but also the people around Trump and the ways they might be profiting from their proximity to the president. This is not a new phenomenon. There's been corruption in both Democratic and Republican administrations. But this time around, something feels very different. Protocols and norms are being tossed aside. This chaotic environment creates fertile ground for people who want to influence the president like Elliot Broidy. As his story unfolds, you can see the dynamics at play. But before we get to Elliot Broidy, we're bringing in ProPublica's Eric Umansky. Hey, Eric. Hey, Andrea. So, Eric, you have been thinking about the ways that people around Trump are making money or potentially benefiting from the presidency. And you've come up with three categories? That's right. Three categories. So let's start with the basic stuff. The first one is using your government post to fund your lifestyle or that of your friends or loved ones. So who is this? So one of the clearest examples is former EPA chief Scott Pruitt. It's about blatant corruption that reaches to the very top of the Trump administration, but also lotion. Among the many, many things, he had his staff drive him around town looking for his favorite fancy lotion. And then there's Chick-fil-A? Right. Pruitt used his job to try to get a Chick-fil-A franchise for his wife. 
And then you have a whole lot of travel, not just uh, Scott Pruitt. You have, for example, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who took military flights costing nearly a million bucks, including one with his wife, where they happened to land at a great spot to view the solar eclipse. Fifteen minutes ahead of time, I put on the glasses. They're like paper glasses. I'm like, I'm worried I'm getting, getting my eyes burned out. I yeah. put it on for like two seconds. Uh-huh. That was the end of my interest in the eclipse. That- after he was criticized, the Treasury Department said Mnuchin would reimburse the government for his wife's portion of the travel. And then there was an investigation into the trips, which didn't find anything illegal, but it did note previous Treasury secretaries typically flew commercial on their domestic flights. And so what's category two? Category two is possibly making money from your government position. Take Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross who basically got negative information about a company and then essentially bet against the company's stock. Ross says it was part of a complex trade to actually divest from the company, but there are just a lot of open questions there. So also in this category is President Trump and his family. Look, the list there is very long. You have President Trump spending a lot of time at his properties and constantly using the presidential pulpit to talk up his various properties. And then there's Trump's hotel in D.C., which is become the place to be for lobbyists and foreign officials. So category one is using your government post to fund a lifestyle for yourself, your friends, your family. Category two is possibly using your government position to make money. What's three? So the third category is essentially selling and benefiting from access to power. And we've long seen that in Washington. But what's different now is the level of chutzpah is really remarkable. So, for example, we just heard Michael Cohen a minute ago, and he made deals with companies to quite explicitly sell them access to the presidency. One of those companies, by the way, happens to be connected to a Russian oligarch. And then there's Rick Gates. Right, who pleaded guilty to money laundering and conspiracy against the United States. But before he did that, he reportedly sold his own access to the administration to Elliot Broidy. ProPublica's Eric Umansky. So, Elliot Brody. Brody operates so far below the radar, we couldn't find any tape of him speaking. We asked to interview him for this story, but a spokesperson declined. We sent a long list of questions. In an emailed statement, the spokesman said, Elliot Brody has never agreed to work for, been retained by, nor been compensated by any foreign government for any interaction with the United States government ever. Any implication to the contrary is a lie. There's a reason we know so much about Elliot Brody. His emails were hacked and released to some reporters. Brody sued over the hack. He filed cases in New York and California, alleging that the state of Qatar orchestrated the hack and that hundreds of thousands of stolen documents were distributed to the media to harm him. Qatar did this, Brody's lawyer says, because he was an outspoken advocate of Israel and thus a critic of Qatar. And he was making headway persuading President Trump that Qatar harbors terrorists. Cutter denies this. The White House did not comment for this story. In a statement to the AP, a lawyer for Broidy also called some of the emails fraudulent and fabricated. The AP and other news organizations checked their contents with dozens of sources and confirmed they tracked closely with real events. It's because of the emails and this reporting that we have an unusually complete picture of influence peddling in the Trump era. We're pulling together the story of Elliot Broidy in this episode as a template for our open investigation this season. It's something we're trying to understand more about how not only Trump, 
but his associates may be benefiting financially from his presidency. Broidy's story starts a decade ago. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Attorney General's conference call. Back in 2009, then-New York Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, he's now the governor, and his top assistant got on a conference call with New York reporters. Today we announced that this afternoon, Elliot Broidy, a founder and chairman of California-based private equity fund Markstone Capital Partners, pled guilty to a felony count of rewarding official misconduct. None of us had really heard of Elliot Broidy then, but as Cuomo laid it out, Broidy successfully steered a quarter of a billion dollars of New York State retirees' pension money into his investment fund, Mark Stone Capital Group. This is an old-fashioned payoff of state officials' case. Uh, This is effectively bribery of state officials. Broidy had paid almost a million dollars in gifts and favors to the officials. And not just one, but a number of state officials in the controller's office. Broidy took the controller's family on luxury tours to Israel, paid for hotels, flights, helicopter tours. The payoffs took more creative forms as well. For example, $300,000 was paid to finance the Leglisi family movie, termed Chooch. David Liglisi was a pension fund official. The movie was his brother Steve's production. David Liglisi also pleaded guilty in the pay-to-play scandal. Steve wasn't charged with any wrongdoing. We couldn't reach either Liglisi for this story. If anyone remembers Brody's pension fund bribery conviction, they remember Chooch, a movie set in Queens. Vanity Fair called it the worst movie ever made. Chooch! As for the New York pension fund investment, it had lost three-fifths of its value as of its latest report in 2017. Broidy pleaded guilty to a felony charge that day in 2009. It was a sharp, steep fall. Just a couple years earlier, he'd been a so-called super ranger for George W. Bush, meaning one of his top, top bundlers of campaign donations. He and his wife threw a party for Bush in their newly purchased Bel Air mansion. But then came the New York investigation, a guilty plea, and a fine. He had been fined $18 million, so they had to get rid of the mansion, for one. This is Michael Finnegan, a Los Angeles Times political reporter who's covered Broidy. He says Broidy did not start out rich. Broidy was a tax accountant. One of his clients was Glenn Bell. Glenn Bell, who was the founder of Taco Bell. Broidy ends up managing Bell's assets, becomes rich. After that, Broidy founds the investment firm Markstone, cultivates connections with pension funds in California and New York. He becomes a major player in the Republican Jewish Coalition and in AIPAC, the Israel lobby. Under President Bush, he gets appointed to a homeland security panel. Then comes the guilty plea. After that, Broidy's legal team convinces a judge to do something unusual, reduce his charge to a misdemeanor. He gets no jail time. Then Broidy starts a new career. And he uses that security credential from Bush to stage a comeback. He had to sort of very quietly build his way back into Republican politics. And he wound up investing in a global security company called Circinus, or buying the company, rather. It's a company founded by former military guys. What it sells, essentially, intelligence gathering which it calls Threat Deterrence. The Threat Deterrence Intelligence Aggregation System, or TDIA, 
is an advanced technology developed for the analysis of information from multiple data sources. In 2014, Circinus gets a Defense Department contract, though no payments go through until 2017. And um, by the time the 2016 presidential campaign came around, Broidy was ready to begin fundraising uh, aggressively for Republican candidates for president again. Broidy first backs Lindsey Graham, then Marco Rubio, then Ted Cruz. When the primaries are over, Brody signs on and starts raising money in a big way for Trump. Just a couple months later... Thank you. Thank you very much. ...the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. According to some lists that were posted by Bloomberg News, Brody has the run of the high donor suites. This is a man who's been convicted of political payoffs, who didn't even support Trump until he literally had no other choices, but who quickly began raising millions for Donald Trump. I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. Up above the crowd, in the most elite and spacious of suites, high rollers ate and watched. You keep walking around and and tasting all the food and uh, having a good time. John Katsimatidis owns a lot of supermarkets in New York and has given Trump a lot of money. He described for us what it was like. A lot of people networking with each other. And all it was is networking, networking, networking. The Republican National Committee cordoned off a set of suites for what it called its highest-level donors. One was called the Presidential Trust, one was for so-called vice chairs, another was the Mnuchin Suite, after Steve Mnuchin, who's now the Treasury Secretary. They were all making a long bet. Nobody thought Trump could win. Nobody thought he was going to win. But they admired him and they, they hoped. The credentialed guests included friends of the president, like New York real estate man Howard Lorber and California financier Tom Barrick, Trump's attorney Michael Cohen. There were bankers, titans of steel and coal. There were billionaires like Wilbur Ross and Betsy DeVos. Nobody knows the system better than me. Credentialed to walk from suite to suite was Elliot Broidy. Though he just joined the Trump team, he had access to the upper levels of the campaign as Trump became the nominee. Which is why I alone can fix it. Against all odds, Trump wins the presidency. Broidy sets to work. We'll be right back. see the plane ferrying the Trump family uh, to Washington, D.C. from uh, New York has It's January 2017. Trump is about uh, to be inaugurated. And Broidy, he's getting ready, too. Before Trump was elected, the leadership page on his business or cynicism website was a list of former generals and military leaders. According to one of the documents released during the hacks, Broidy moves his name up to the top of the page. Around this time, his company starts getting payments from the 2014 Defense Department contract. He's able to point to that work in pitching foreign governments. 
he becomes finance co-chair of the inaugural committee. Brody's reaching out to foreign governments to pitch his company's security services, the documents and news reporting shows, bragging about his access to Trump, Mike Pence, Steve Mnuchin, Jeff Sessions. He even has Sessions' private email account, according to ProPublica, and suggests some names for U.S. attorney for Sessions to appoint. Brody gives some of his inauguration event tickets to his prospective clients. In one letter released in that email hack, first reported by the New York Times, Brody sends two top Angolan government officials an invitation to the 58th presidential inaugural. In the same email, he sends them a contract with his firm, Circinus. The records show the firm will get $6 million in payments from Angola. Broidy pitches his access and his firm's counterterrorism surveillance work across the globe. Romania, the United Arab Emirates, Malaysia. We're going to look at each of these. First, Romania. Right before the inauguration, Broidy invites some senior Romanian officials to inaugural events. This was first reported by McClatchy. During the festivities, Brody goes to a luncheon with Trump at Trump's hotel in Washington. Somebody uploaded a video of Trump arriving. There are some blurry pictures taken in the restaurant that appear to show Brody sitting at a small table next to the president-elect underneath the white iron grillwork in the old post office. During the meal, Livio Dragnia, a Romanian power broker, walks right up to Trump and shakes his hand. According to Dragnia's Facebook page, Trump tells him, Romania is important to us. One Romanian expert told me that Dragnia is the Romanian Darth Vader. He can't run for public office himself because he's been convicted of vote rigging. According to two sources familiar with Dragnia, being seen with Trump is validation. And for Broidy, being seen with Trump at this luncheon by Dragnia is a testament to his own importance. Broidy goes on to pitch business in Romania and eventually lands a preliminary agreement for $200 million. Though as of now, the funding hasn't gone through. According to the emails and reporting by McClatchy and the Romanian news site Hot News, Broidy has a business partner in Romania with a familiar name, Steve Leglisi. Maybe you remember that name. He used to be a movie producer. Chooch! Steve's brother, David, is the one Brody pleaded guilty to paying off in that New York pension scandal back in 2009. In the swirl of events around the inaugural, Brody strikes up a relationship with a man named George Nader, who's about to become an important Brody business contact. Nader's got connections with top leaders in the United Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This part of the story was first reported by the New York Times and the Associated Press based on the emails, which we've seen. Broidy's team says the emails were stolen and asserts some were forged. They told the AP that Nader is a U.S. citizen and he did not direct any of Broidy's actions. Over the course of the next year, Nader holds out the prospect to Broidy of hundreds of millions of dollars in security contracts with the United Arab Emirates. For his part, Broidy offers Nader access to Trump and the opportunity to press for major foreign policy changes on behalf of Nader's clients in the Middle East. One of their goals is to isolate Qatar, where there's a U.S. military base. Another of the hacked emails shows Broidy writing, We must help them kill all the snakes. In the emails, snake is the code word for Qatar. 
In May of 2017, Trump makes his first foreign trip to Saudi Arabia. It's there where Trump and Saudi leaders rest their hands on a glowing orb. The crowded room is dark. As the music swells, they're lit up by panels from below. The next month, at an RNC event at Trump's hotel in Washington, Trump says, Elliot Broidy is fantastic. And Elliot Broidy is fantastic. The Intercept published this tape. Later in the speech, President Trump says, We're having a dispute with Qatar. We're supposed to say Qatar. It's Qatar they prefer. I prefer that they don't fund terrorists. Broidy and Nader see all of this as an opening. They discuss getting an in-person meeting with Trump at the White House. In late September, Broidy attends a fundraiser with Trump at an upper-crust restaurant in New York, Le Cirque. Broidy writes to Nader, I met the chairman last night. The chairman is their code for President Trump. Lots of people around. Nothing was discussed. I asked him for the meeting. He agreed. A few days later, Broidy goes right to the Oval Office. He sends a detailed email telling Nader he has pitched his causes right to the president. Nader is thrilled, but he wants one more thing. He wants to get his picture with Trump at a fundraiser in Dallas. There is a problem, as first described by the AP. The Secret Service doesn't want to approve it. In 2002, Nader was convicted of sexually abusing minors in Prague. He served time in prison. It's not clear if the sex abuse charge is the reason why the Secret Service objects. Broidy drafts an email to Trump's chief of staff, vouching for Nader. Broidy also tells Nader he needs to make a minimum payment of $100,000 to the Republican National Committee. We don't know how this is resolved, and there's no record of a payment by Nader. But Nader does get his photo taken with Trump. The next month, Broidy gives his biggest donation ever to the RNC... $189,000. In December, there is another big-dollar fundraiser Brody refers to in his emails. This one's at Cipriani in New York, a restaurant in a vault-ceilinged old bank building across from Grand Central Terminal. Trump's in a good mood because he's just gotten his tax bill passed. Tell him, how have we done on the fundraising front? Because of him and because of you, we have broken every record in the history of the RNC Trump standing on a stage in front of a video of American flags overlaying a blue curtain. He's joking with the crowd. You guys, look at that table. That's a rough table I have there. That's, that's my friends in that table. But I want to thank you. Great job, Giuseppe Paolo. In New York that weekend, Broidy and Trump meet again to discuss the Middle East. Broidy sends an email to George Nader outlining what he tells Trump. Days later, Broidy sends a contract Nader's way. It's for work in the Emirates. Brody starts getting payments through a shell company in Canada. The first wire is for $36 million. But that's just a down payment. Brody's contract with the UAE is worth up to $600 million. A third country Brody sought business with? Malaysia. Around the time Brody and Nader are working on the Emirati deal, Najib Razak, then the Prime Minister of Malaysia, meets Trump at the White House. Thank you very much. Trump's seated at the table with his cabinet, flanked by Mike Pence and John Kelly, his chief of staff. It's great to have 
the Prime Minister of Malaysia and his very distinguished delegation with us today. The meeting is a good look for Najib, today. who at the time is under fire for corruption in Malaysia. He'll be charged in his own country a year later for money laundering and abuse of power. But behind the scenes for this event, there's been a lot of hustling, as the Wall Street Journal first reported. Broidy wants to get security work in Malaysia. To help get the deal, he's put together some talking points for the prime minister to tell Trump about how both countries are fighting ISIS and North Korea. We don't know whether Broidy discussed the talking points with the prime minister or if the prime minister raised them with Trump. What we do know, in the cabinet room, Trump says them out loud. Together, they'll fight ISIS. Not allowing ISIS, or as you say, Daesh, uh, and others to exist. At another point in his remarks that day, Trump invokes North Korea. Uh, does not do business with North Korea any longer. It's not clear if Broidy's business dealings with Malaysia bear fruit. Not too long after the meeting, Prime Minister Najib is voted out in an anti-corruption wave. In early 2018, things begin to go badly for Broidy. He plans to meet the president at Mar-a-Lago, but the government shuts down and Trump cancels his trip south. George Nader is also on his way to Mar-a-Lago, but he's stopped at Dulles Airport by federal agents who question him about possible foreign interference in Trump's 2016 campaign. He had a meeting with Don Jr. at Trump Tower in August of 2016. Not too long after all this, Broidy's hacked emails get released. The New York Times, the Associated Press, McClatchy, the Wall Street Journal. They each get some of the emails. Reports about Broidy's attempted influence peddling start to emerge. In their letter to us, Broidy's lawyers say, Cutter's modus operandi appears to be select a group of emails on topics intended to generate negative publicity about Mr. Broidy and to repeat this cycle with as many news outlets and stories as it can. Brody's financial story remains part of the background noise around Trump. Then news breaks about the $1.6 million payment to a former Playboy model. That the deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee had an affair with a Playboy model, got her pregnant, and paid her to stay silent about it all, including the abortion. Less than 10 years after admitting to paying off New York state officials, Broidy again faces public shaming. He resigns from the RNC. Broidy cancels an appearance with Trump at a Los Angeles event. His superpower to get close to Trump is gone. In August of this year, the Washington Post reports that Broidy is under scrutiny by federal prosecutors for trying to manipulate the U.S. president on behalf of foreign governments. Broidy denies this. He still has his contracts, $7.5 million in contracts and subcontracts with the U.S. government, an agreement with Romania for the possibility of up to $200 million of work, and a contract worth up to $600 million with the United Arab Emirates. We have such a complete story to tell you because Brody's emails got hacked. But Brody's story is just one of many examples of attempted influence peddling in the Trump administration. It's important to note that Brody has not been convicted or even accused of any crimes in relation to President Trump. But there's a pattern of behavior that's becoming all too familiar. 
WNYC and ProPublica, we've been asking ourselves if what we're seeing in the Trump administration is actually worse than what we've seen during past presidencies, right? I mean, Trump ran with the slogan, drain the swamp. So to put this in context. Hi, it's Sarah. Whoops, wait a second, let me get my earphones on. We caught up an expert in international corruption. Um, so yeah, I'm Sarah Chase. I encountered corruption living on the ground in Afghanistan, where it turned out to be the most important issue driving the conflict there. Chase was an NPR reporter. She ended up in Afghanistan working on economic development there and wrote a book about her experience called Thebes of State. She studied corruption in Nigeria, Egypt, Tunisia. She's advised the military and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In Afghanistan, Chase saw corruption all the time. A bank officer once demanded she pay a bribe to make a bank deposit. That doesn't really happen in the U.S., but... What's going on currently in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, is an American version of a phenomenon that I've been seeing all over the world, which is to say networks made up of top government officials, captains of industry, out-and-out criminals woven together are hijacking government and economic function and bending it to serve the purposes of their personal enrichment and not the public interest. She says these networks are a key indicator of corruption. It's not an accident that, for example, we're seeing a group of people attempting to profit from Trump's presidency who are connected not only to the president, but to each other, like members of a club. You've got in the Trump administration a much higher level of overlap between private and public sector members of the network than has typically been the case in the past. But, and this is key. President Trump is really taking the veil off of practices that have been moving in this direction anyway. Jay says corruption in the U.S. is a bipartisan problem. We've got half of the electorate doesn't even vote in presidential elections, and I've been asking people why. And I get answers like, well, they're going to put who they want in office anyway. And I say, well, what's rigged about the system? Too much money. I mean, these are absolutely unanimous answers. You've made a convincing case that the American system has been a lot sicker than most people have thought for a long time. It looks to me like we're sort of sliding down a mountain and then with Trump we've fallen off a cliff. I think that's exactly the right way to put it, is that we've been sliding down this mountain and mountains are not, you know, just gently rolling things. Mountains include sudden and violent drop-offs. Coming up on Trump Inc. Specifically, I think they haven't even added up the numbers, but we were talking about like 15K a month. Uh, let me see what that adds up to. 12. Yeah, so that's 180,000. Does that sound like uh, a fair deal for you? How Trump keeps those around him silent. Trump Inc. is an open investigation. Have you seen a Trump non disclosure agreement? Have you perhaps even signed one yourself? Email us at tips at trumpincpodcast.org. Find out how to send secure documents at trumpincpodcast.org. 
Trump, Inc. is produced by Meg Kramer. The associate producer is Alice Wilder. The technical director is Bill Moss. Original music by Hannes Brown. Charlie Herman and Eric Dumansky are the editors. We had help this episode from Catherine Sullivan, Jake Pearson, and Jack Gillum at ProPublica. Robin Fields is ProPublica's managing editor. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. And Steve Engelberg is the editor-in-chief at ProPublica. <laughs>